It's official. One Shining Podcast is back, and I am your host, Tate Frazier. And as March Madness begins, we're covering everything from Selection Sunday all the way to the championship and beyond. We're going to have great guests that are coming through on the show. And look, if you're a friend of the program and you're already subscribed, you don't have to do anything. OSP is back. It's going to be right back in your feed. And if you're not a friend of the program and this is your first time on the rodeo, then let me tell you this. You need to go to Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts and smash subscribe today because the OSP show is back. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome back, everybody. It's Larry Wilmore. You're listening to Black on the Air. Uh, before I get into today's show, I do want to, you know, I know I've had a lot of shows lately where I just go into the guest, and some of you like hearing my weigh-ins on topics and stuff like that. And I have to be honest with you guys, I just love talking to my guests <laughs> these days. I've had some really, really interesting people, and I just want to get to them. Today is no exception. And I do promise you, and by the way, I get tired of all the crap that's going on out there. So a lot of times I don't even want to talk about it, to be honest with you. But I promise you, I will be doing more weigh-ins and that type of thing, you know, especially if I feel like I have a take that isn't what's in the echo chamber, because I don't want to just repeat what everybody's talking about. But nobody's talking about this today. And so I'm very excited to have the author of the book, Blackball. Uh, it's Teresa Runstetler. She's an award-winning writer and scholar of African-American history and also associate professor in the Department of History at American University. Welcome to Black on the Air, Teresa, and congratulations on your book. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for inviting me to talk about Black Ball. I know. And let me say the whole time, it's Black Ball, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Spencer Haywood, and the generation that saved the soul of the NBA. Okay, as an old school Basketball mm-hmm. aficionado. This is like, uh, like right in my veins. <laughs> this subject matter. When I saw this title, I'm like, oh, absolutely, we have to talk about this. And it's such a deep dive, too. You know, there's there's a very superficial version of this book, but this is not mm-hmm. it. It's congratulations. I mean, there's so much research and just a uh, rabbit hole. <laughs> uh, Trust me, there were even more rabbit holes than I, yeah. I could fit in the book. So I've got a whole file of stuff that didn't make it in. And it's such an interesting double entendre, you know, uh, blackball. And of course, you even start the book with about players being blackballed, which is kind of interesting. What, what, well, first, Teresa, what kind of led you? to writing this book? Was this a suggestion? Is that what you were alluding to? or Yeah. So I actually, it's twofold. I have a personal connection to the mm. NBA, which if you dug into the introduction, you get a little snippet of that. Go ahead and mention it. I used to be a Toronto Raptors dance pack member. No shame in that game. Back in my university yeah. days. It's interesting how you even talk about how the music changed during that era with the ownership changing. It's kind of a foreshadowing of your book a little bit too, in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. And so the book was in part a way for me to make sense of all of the stuff that I was seeing as a 22-year-old, 20-22-year-old on the team and sort Mm -hmm. of seeing a little bit behind the veil of NBA basketball. So um, when I first started out, it was the second year of the Toronto Raptors existence. Mm -hmm. It was still kind of almost operating like a a startup 
So yeah. it was very kind of like, do what you want. You know? right, right, right. Isaiah was a huge supporter supporter of the dance team. Isaiah Thomas, ex-star of the Detroit Pistons, everybody knows, right? He was the executive there, right? He was the GM of the team. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, whatever people want to say about his management skills for the actual basketball team, right. he was amazing for the dance team because he let us do pretty much what we wanted. And mm-hmm. uh, the the leader of the dance pack at that time, Tamara Mose, um, came out of the hip hop dance community in Toronto. She wanted to create something that was not cheerleadery, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> not to use that term derisively, but, um, you know, we were all dancers, trained dancers. We wanted to dance you know, as authentic hip hop as we could on the core. We were dancing to Busta Rhymes. We mm-hmm. had like the mechanic suits, you know, we look like, you know, we were trying to be like the folks in the music video. Right. Or fly girls from In Living Color, you know, yeah, yeah. the Laker girls and that kind of stuff kind of started it all with Paula Abdul doing some of that choreography. Yeah. And so, as you mentioned before, when the management sort of shifted and the team became much more corporatized, we also went to a new arena and so, of course, they're thinking about selling seat licenses, mm. seat licenses, floor seats are all bought up primarily by wealthy businessmen mm-hmm. and also corporations. They're trying to sell boxes. Right. We became a, a much more sparkly version of ourselves, um, wearing tight costumes, dancing to, um, you know, Will Smith. So very family friendly, you know, anything that you would, you know, hear at your regular bar mitzvah. Buster Rhymes to parents just don't understand. (laughs) And I was like, hmm, interesting. I didn't know what to make of it when I was Mm -hmm. that young, but I knew that there was something going on there where we weren't allowed to express what was, I think, at the time more authentic to young folks of color in Toronto who were interested in hip hop, who were interested in basketball, the folks who, you know, sat in the upper decks of the stadium. Mm-hmm. Um, we started out, I think, being pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and then it and reflected of, the energy of where the game was at at that time, too, and what was happening in basketball. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You know, it was the same era of Allen Iverson. Right. You know, and all the folks who were really bringing, I think, a lot of hip hop culture into sure. the game. Yeah, that was Which a big course, transition period. Yeah, absolutely. No, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you know, a lot of the mainstream reporters at that time were, you know, looking at that transition as something yeah. that might not be good for basketball. Wow. And so, That's interesting. <laughs> so I kind of went back in time and wanted to figure out, you know, where does that, where does this, you know, thing that I was seeing in the 1990s, what's the prehistory to that? Mm-hmm. You know, why is it that the game um, always has this weird triangulation between the owners, yeah. the, you know, imagined white fans? <laughs> yes, yes. Right? Because right. not all fans were white, but that's, you know. Right. And not all white fans are acting this certain way that they think that they are going to act. Yes. Right. But this triangulation between sort of these two vectors of whiteness and then often in opposition to the the players and the kind of ball that they want to play, the kind of rights that they wanted to achieve Mm -hmm. as professionals. And so I wanted to trace that back into that pivotal moment really over the course of, I would say, the late 60s and then into the early 80s, when basketball literally becomes black ball. Yeah. Um, It's so interesting. Uh, I think the NBA is one of those sports, the beginnings of it aren't talked about that much. You know, like baseball, of course, I mean, it's almost like the Bible, the, the you know, <laughs> like the days of right. baseball, you know, you could quote the scripture, you know, of it, you know, and everybody knows the when Jackie Robinson came in and what was going on during that time. But there's not a lot known about the early days of the NBA. And you also take the time to describe what that was like. And some of this, I didn't know that many of the black players, like when you came into baseball, 
when Jackie Robinson broke in and you were a black player in baseball, you had to be a superstar. That, that was your, the justification of having you on the team. But basketball was like almost the opposite. You had to kind of blend in in order to, yeah. to play with the white players. Is that right? Well, basketball has this weird racial history. Yeah. And actually, my graduate student or former graduate student, Curtis Harris, wrote a dissertation on this. Um, so the era before I'm looking at and found that actually at a certain point, basketball wasn't completely segregated because it was a decentralized sport that was played in cities, often small cities across the nation. Mm-hmm north, midwest, even moving into the south. Um, but there were always, it might have been segregated by team. Sure. But those teams always played each other. So right. that's where you have like the Harlem Wrens of the 1920s who are going around challenging, barnstorming and playing against white teams. So there wasn't really until the NBA, you know, took over basketball and made it into, you know, a bona fide league that mm-hmm. was seeking national recognition um, in big city markets. That's when you see the color line emerge. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, the first black players, they kind of enter into the NBA again, um, not under a huge fanfare. Yeah. So you have like Chuck. We don't Cooper. know their names. Yeah, yeah. We don't. We don't really. Ta- I mean, basketball nope. fans, of course, the ones right. who are the really diehard aficionados, sure. they know the first guys who came in, but they sort of came in in fits and starts. It was. It was not mm-hmm. initially a flood. The NBA was really trying to control just how many players came in, what mm. roles they played. And how many were on each team? So you had a guy like, or you had guys like Chuck Cooper and Earl Lloyd coming into the league in 1950. They're, you know, essentially, you know, one or two players on a team of white players. Mm-hmm. And there was this informal racial quota that was upheld really until the late 60s. Wow. And a lot of folks don't know about that. You know, we think of black basketball as being like this, this really kind of progressive sport, but it wasn't initially like that. Um, And then, you know, you also had this situation where the players that did come in, they were slotted into subordinate roles. They were the guys who were supposed to be, you know, passing the ball off to the white star who could then score a ton of points. And it's like all the (laughs) black players were Kurt Rambis. I mean, I'm saying this as a Laker fan, I love me some Kurt Rambis. You know, he was the original well, you Superman. Need, you need, need those players, yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. but it's funny that that was the identity of the black player, you know. Yeah, and anyone who sort of went up against that was in danger of being literally blackballed and right. sent sent out of the league if you didn't follow the racial etiquette. White they players had no on status. Your- they had. It's not like they were stars and they had fans and they could. They, so they had no leverage. That their only way of staying in the league was just blending in. Well, and at that time they had no contractual rights either. Yeah. This is before guaranteed contracts. Right. All of that came out of the era that I look at in the book. Sure. Right. And it wasn't something that the NBA just decided to give to the players. The players, right. no, no. Yeah. you know, it was a black led struggle to bring certain labor rights to the league um, in that period, the early part of the book. I definitely talk about that. So the NBA, yeah, the NBA starts to get seeds of its current identity, probably with the introduction of Bill Russell, right? Um, mm-hmm. Who is unabashedly the star of the Boston Celtics. You know, you have a Jewish coach there who is, you know, in lockstep with this black player. Boston Celtics was one of the first teams to have a black player too. It's funny how the Celtics broke so many barriers with black players and kind of had a reputation Russell, in the eighties. In the right. And later. Russell himself was yeah. like, this place doesn't really love me. 
you know, at the same time, the city, right. The city was a lot different experience than the team, which is kind of right. ironic, you know, uh, people forget how important Elgin Baylor was, you know, and mm-hmm. how much of a star he was in Los Angeles. And like, I didn't even realize how big a deal it was to be a star black player at that time. And of course the ultimate is Will Chamberlain who broke every record. And yet, even though they were doing those things, those arenas during that period, 4,000 people, 5,000 people, like that was considered a packed arena. And, and mean, the NBA, you know, in the whole period that I'm looking at, they have a pretty terrible TV contract. Yeah. You know, a lot of it because of the failure of management to properly negotiate a good contract. Yeah. Some of it also because the league was still in a moment where it was trying to figure out how to sell the game to a larger public. They hadn't, you know, they hadn't really cracked that code yet. So in the early um, 1970s, you're really looking at a game is not as popular as the NCAA. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the late sixties, even it's not as popular as the Globetrotters. The Globetrotters actually open for some NBA games. So we forget about, you know, how recent all of this success was and how that success actually dovetails with the growing blackness of the sport. Yeah. Now let's talk about what blackness actually means in terms of basketball, because there's blackness in terms of color, of course, but you imply a different type of black ball here too, in terms of style, you know, and it was called, there were many names for it. It was called playground ball, you know, that type of thing. A lot of the, one of the derogatory terms I remember, um, it was called showboating, (laughs) Mm -hmm. that type of style. And the NBA was considered not just white, but that's the proper way to play basketball. And was very, it was very anti that style of basketball, even as far as probably the mid seventies, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Which, uh, really was a separation, not only of style, but of certain types of players. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I feel like in the late sixties, early seventies, as you start to see the number of black players coming out of this black basketball tradition come into the league and begin to transform what's happening on the court management doesn't know what to do with that they're actually threatened by that they're worried um that if the team gets too black not just in terms of the number of black players that was also uh, a fear but also too black in the way that it played that white fans wouldn't come watch the games Mm -hmm. even as the nba was really trying to carve out um a niche for itself on the national stage next to other properties like the nfl and mlb you know one of the things that they could have really leaned into was black basketball you know the um the aerial play Mm -hmm. that we associate Um, with the NBA, the dunking, um, the, you know, fancy dribbling, the behind the back passes, the improvisational style, the individual feats of athleticism, all of those things were simultaneously something that white fans were interested in, but mm-hmm. also threatened by. Kind of like hip hop. <laughs> yeah. I mean, those two, right. the, the two actually is this sort of fear of a black planet. Like what happens? No doubt. And it's gendered too, because it's black men yeah, yeah, who yeah. are, you know, gaining this kind of uh, fame and wealth. Yeah. And then also at the same time, modeling behavior that is not always that respectable. That's not in the case of basketball team oriented, self-sacrificing, yeah. hardworking. Right, right, right. Those are the white values. Yes. <laughs> yes. Right, right. Individualism, go for yourself, you know, all these things it's are these selfish. black values. Yeah. Well, which is so interesting because, you know, I I found a lot of great interviews of black basketball players in a magazine from the 70s called mm. Black Sports. Mm-hmm. It was sort of like the black version of Sports Illustrated fascinating magazine. 
Um, and there was an interview with Earl Monroe. Earl the Pearl. Black Jesus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and there's a whole story of, uh, around why he's not Black Jesus. He's Earl the Pearl because it's not racialized. Sure. Yada, yada, yada. Of course, mm-hmm. all this is wrapped up also in his style of play. Yep. They talked about the fact that when he first came into the league, he would do these no-look passes. Um and his teammates would miss them. They, they would just go right. flying. They weren't ready for it. Yeah. Like, Wait, you're passing to me? Or the refs would, you know, constantly call him for traveling. Right. And they actually had to show footage of him slowed down to the refs. So that the refs would be like, oh, oh no, he's just really good. <laughs> he's right. just really good at ball handling. Um, but one of the things that he talks about in that um, interview was that there wasn't at least in his mind and his coming up through quote unquote playground basketball, a kind of um, disconnect between individual excellence and collective excellence Mm -hmm. on the court. He didn't see those two things as competing. And so for him, he was like, well, of course I, especially when he got, um, you know, sent to the Knicks, they were like, how are you going to play with Walt Frazier? You know, you got to be a team player. The Knicks are, you know, uh, they play a team game. How are you right. going to survive? And he said, look, I want to win. So I'm going to do what I need to do and play the kind of ball that I need to play in order to help the team win. Right. The real question should have been, how are they going to stop the Knicks now? <laughs> that should have been the real question. <laughs> How's anybody going to stop this team now? Yeah. Right. But like, it's so interesting that the, all of these questions about, yeah. you know, style, they become wrapped up in these larger questions about sure. the morality of black men. Well, and What's great about this book, too, Teresa, to give you more props and flowers, is you take us through the journeys of people in this, too. And I'm so happy that you uh, tell the world about Connie Hawkins, you know, who his example, because he actually sued the NBA and actually won, which is ridiculous. People forget about that. Like we we think about Kurt Flood and his lawsuit you know, in the MLB and it kind of failed. And, you know, he was kind of a broken man after that, but Connie Hawkins actually won. He actually won. And then Spencer Haywood, you know, basically got what he wanted. And then Oscar Robertson at all the NBA, they also ended up winning. All those courtroom battles and how important they were. Um, was also happening at the same time that the ABA became like a showcase for this uh, black talent that wasn't accepted. So it's funny, the NBA had to deal with a lot of these forces that were slowly building against it, right? Mm -hmm. And I actually think that the fact that the ABA came into being in 1967 Mm -hmm. helped the cause of black players. Um, and their antitrust suits. And, you know, there were so many other instances that I didn't include in the book where players, by the time you get to the late 60s and early 70s, are just sitting out uh, training camp or they're just deciding to sit out and they're like, look, you gave me this promise. You didn't follow through on it. You know, what's up with that? Um, I gave... um, one example of uh, Norm Van Leer and Love mm-hmm. to push back against um, what they said was, you know, fraudulent contract talks and they end up losing. But there was a whole host of players just sitting out. Yeah. There were a whole host of players um, in the wake of the Connie Hawkins suit also lodging their own suits against the NBA for blacklisting. And so this was a period of... Uh, um, a real challenge to the NBA's monopoly yeah. by predominantly black players. And they're, they're winning a lot of the time. So it seemed like there's this trajectory where it seems like, okay, these people are winning. They're, you know, winning these lawsuits by and large. Uh, the ABA is becoming a showcase, even though it's not as visible. And yet the image of the league seems to be going on a downward spiral. So talk about that. Why is that happening? The ABA was so foundational to a lot of these labor fights in Mm -hmm. the late 60s and early 70s. 
And one of the things that you see is that the ABA, it has, you know, for the first time in a long time, provided a kind of um, competitive rival for the NBA. Mm-hmm. So all of those monopolistic mechanisms, blacklisting, the college draft, and the reserve clause, they don't work as well when you have another league to go to, mm-hmm. when you have a second option. So one of the things that starts to happen is the salaries start going up just as the number of black players start going up. <laughs> and people are, and this is in a moment of economic crisis. I mean, sure. in some ways, you know, the early seventies are mirroring some of the things that we're going through right now. Yeah. It was Recession a- in terms of worries about climate change, you know, the oil crisis, et cetera. And so it's all against that backdrop mm-hmm. where white workers are finding mm-hmm. that that prosperity that they had been promised ever since World War II right. was suddenly hitting a plateau yeah. and declining. Their unions were, you know, being picked apart. And then all of a sudden they're looking, you know, on the te- television or reading in the newspaper, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar gets contract for, you know, his multi-million dollars. Or they're complaining about their contracts, that type right, of thing. Right. So they're being called selfish and pouty and pampered and not grateful and all these terms. Right. And those are all of the traditional scripts that, especially in that moment, um, white owners, white fans, the white media expected of black players. Mm-hmm like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, you know, he became this kind of villainous figure, even though he was just a quiet guy who, you know, was learning how to handle the spotlight, you know, of the NBA. Do you think becoming Muslim had a lot to do with that? Changing his name from Lou Alexander to Kareem Mm Abdul-Jabbar? I'm sure that didn't help. And, you know, this sense that even during his initial contract negotiations um, and all of this, I didn't get to include as much of it in the book. This was covered ad nauseum in the press. Sure. Sure. So people were like, (laughs) as you can imagine, like, Oh, come on, like Kareem. Um, And so he basically said with his management team, ABA and NBA come at me with your best and final. So um, he, he, he actually said one of his, his memoirs, he's like, I did not want to feel like people were bidding on me mm. because then I would feel like a piece of property. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for somebody who I have to say, he was a history major. Um, UCLA, <laughs> UCLA. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he studied African burn. history, you know, yeah. he studied African-American history. He's somebody who understood what that meant. Um, you know, as somebody who was descended of enslaved people, you, you know, he just didn't want to feel like a piece of meat. And so he was really, even in that moment, taking control of his career in a way that was quite threatening for the establishment. And then even, you know, reporters at that time were like, I can't get a hold of this guy. (laughs) And when he does show up, he gives me one word answers. (laughs) No, Kareem at that time, Kareem was playing black chess (laughs) when everyone else was playing white checkers, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. And, you know, he just pushed back on all of those scripts about black athletes must Mm -hmm. be grateful They must be, Mm. you know, even if they are aggressive on the court, they must be submissive off court. Mm -hmm. They must, um, you know, try to be as respectable as possible. And in the mainstream sense of respectability, you're not supposed to be wearing a kufi and talking about Sunni Islam, you know? (laughs) Yeah, those were in the days where people forget Muhammad Ali, as popular as he became, was still very divisive during that time. And part of the divisiveness was his, they called the braggadocio, you know, right. This, uh, because athletes, black and white, 
the majority of athletes had this humble thing that they always presented to the public, even if they weren't that way in real life. You know, when they were being interviewed, they always put that (laughs) face on, you know, well, you know, I'm just trying to play the game, you know, whatever's good for them. Right. So here's this guy who comes in and just is grunting and he's like, I don't owe you any. Like he actually basically (laughs) says, he basically says in his interview in Sport Magazine, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't really owe you anything. Like I'm not trying to please the fans and the interviewer kind of says you're going to be around for the next 15 years you're going to get used to this and he's like well i'm not into that you know wow so it's all of you know all of those moments that made basketball seem like geez we don't have control over this Mm -hmm. train anymore it's moving and it's moving in a direction that we're not sure what it's going to look like. How, how soon did the report, the reporting of drugs being done, uh, being abused, I should say in the NBA, what year were those types of stories coming out and, you know, how much of an impact did that have on the image of the NBA during that time? Great question. I so I start the book in 1980 with the infamous Chris Cobb's piece oh, about yeah, devastating yeah. 40 to 75 percent. Like what a range! 40 to 75 percent of you <laughs> <Yeah>. know <laughs> 40 to 75 percent players That's are using cocaine, right? Yeah. Um, but interestingly enough, when I started going back into the newspaper newspaper databases, I found reports even from the late 60s on. Um, And the majority of them, when we're talking about basketball players, were Black basketball players. Uh, You know, I didn't do a quantitative analysis. That's not really my method. But, you know, it's just repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. So-and-so got caught for possession. So-and-so got caught for possession. It was always for possession. Mm-hmm. Often the, the charges would be dropped or the amount found, you know, would turn out to be not even, you know, uh, a, a major offense yeah. uh, or the way in which that, you know, uh, the way in which the drugs were found were under dubious circumstances, like in the case of Wally Jones, um, who also, um, like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar played for the Bucks uh, in the early 70s. And, you know, it became this way to sort of talk about, oh, no, like what's happening? Maybe we need some law and order in the league mm-hmm. in order to clean this up and to clean up the image. Mm-hmm. Now, as the sport was getting more and more demographically Black, more and more stylistically Black, all of a sudden it seemed like, players were bringing the urban crisis into the league. And what would that look like? Mm -hmm. You know, would it become just this playground league of a bunch of drug addicts and guys fighting on the court? Um, And that became, you know, a lot of the narrative of the late seventies in particular, Mm -hmm. but you can see it really, really over across the entire decade. Yeah. The fighting, really became a big issue. I remember uh, Kermit Washington when he punched Rudy Tomjanovich, I think it was. And then I remember Kareem punching Kent Benson. That was crazy. Yes. Um, Cause a lot of times you don't see the punch that happens before. <laughs> right. Well, and you that's see the what retaliation. Said. You see the retaliation punch. You right. Know, right. And he just decked him. And I mean, I think it, okay, this is like 77, I think maybe 78. And the NBA was still at a point where like the finals were on tape delay during this time. And, you know, did it, was there a sense that it was on life support in terms of the owners? Like a lot of people weren't making money during this time either. Right. So it depends. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So one of the things in the earlier part of the book, I look at the Senate committee um, that was discussing whether or not, the NBA and ABA should have the right to merge and get a Sherman Antitrust Act waiver. And one of the things Mm -hmm. that happens in the course of that um, set of hearings is that they dig a little bit into the NBA and ABA finances. And one of the things that they find 
is that actually the teams weren't doing that bad. Mm -hmm. And the teams that were doing badly weren't really going to survive no matter what they were paying the players. Mm -hmm. They just, their business model was off. They didn't have a big enough arena to have enough fans in order to support a team. So probably a a team shouldn't be in that city right now. Um, But it was, you know, from the early 70s, this narrative of here are the players, they're asking for too much money. These overpaid, untested rookies are getting these million dollar contracts and they're bankrupting these owners. And the owners try to also portray themselves almost like humanitarian organizations, you know, that were, um, you know, providing basketball for the public and they're doing it, you know, for the love of the game, even though they weren't making a lot of money, but, you know, it it was very complicated to sort of parse how much money each franchise was making because often they could take the losses from the team, put them against you know, earnings in another sector of their business and end up not having to pay taxes. (laughs) I'm saying it certainly wasn't what they were making in MLB or NFL at that time. No, no. Nor what it, you know, the boondoggle that was about to come too. you know. Right. Absolutely. Like like it could have, I mean, honestly, NBA could have gone under, you know, you know, they could have folded at some point. You know, I think the, the thing that was being sold to the public as this declining thing for my experience, the opposite was happening Mm. in the community I was in because I was playing ball during that period. Like the most, one of the most exciting things about the NBA during that period for me was the merger and being able to see Julius Irving play basketball on television. Like to me, you could put that up with magic and bird. That was the other inciting incident of the popularity of basketball. And to me, like that viewership of people like me Mm -hmm. and, that viewership went up and up and up during those years, even though they were telling us the white viewership was doing this, you know, right. was going down. Well, one of the things when you start to look at the numbers in certain markets, they were going down in other mm-hmm. markets, they were going up. So yeah. it wasn't across the board, but there were certain key markets where basketball had sort of flagged a little bit. But if you looked at the context in which that happened, often the team wasn't doing that well, or they weren't doing as well as they had been in the past. Right. Or there's no real stars and there's no way to market the the team in a way that's exciting to you. Yeah. So, I mean, it wasn't necessarily, I mean, I think the way that it got spun was that the players had created this situation. And one of the things that I tried to, to really push back on was the fact that yes, maybe there were some teams that were struggling, but you know, a lot of it had to do also with mismanagement. Mm -hmm. A lot of it had to do with the exorbitant fees that the NBA charged the ABA teams that entered the league. So certain franchises were on life support, but it wasn't necessarily um, because the game had gone bad. Um, you know, it, it had to do with these larger forces and mm-hmm. also just chronic mismanagement and the lack of a, a good television uh, contract that could have mm-hmm. paid everybody. The other thing that teams or, or the players that had pointed out back when they were arguing, hey, you know, uh, your way out of this problem of having some teams doing really well and other teams not doing really well is actually maybe you should institute some revenue sharing among the teams. And right. the team owners said, oh, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> they said no. And so that sort of remained, you know, the the way that the business worked really until like, you know, much later on. And so... Again, it was just, it was other forces that were sort of bringing on this supposed decline of the game. But what was actually happening on the court, you know, like I said in in chapter seven, all of the players were saying, wait a second, like we're not undisciplined. Maybe you Mm -hmm. should look at yourselves. Maybe you should actually take some of our advice when we tell you (laughs) in the case of, um, you know, uh, some of the players who were speaking back to management at that time. Mm -hmm. So it's a complicated story. 
Right. I don't think it can sort of be painted in broad strokes when you actually look at, at the data. Even though it was at the time, right? Right. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life. With premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. You spend some time talking about Simon Gradine, who was the NBA's first Black League executive. Uh, can you talk about him a little bit and what was his significance during that period, early 70s to mid-70s maybe? Is that what it was? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So Simon Gordine was the highest ranking Black executive in North American sports at that time. Um, he, unlike most folks who had gotten into front office positions, either as you know coaches and then moving into GM status, uh, he, he was not a former player. He had no real connection to the NBA. He's actually, mm-hmm. uh, you know, somebody who went to college, became a lawyer, um, and then sort of happened into the NBA. Uh, so this was extremely unusual for the time because it used to be, and it's still very much common today that you have to have some sort of player credential in order to move into higher positions, um, you know, in front office or management coaching, et cetera. So he was sort of an anomaly. And in some ways he represented, I think, the emerging Black professional class in this period that was going to college, that was trying to make their way into what we like to call the stream of money, right? Into those positions where all of the money is, you know, um, being made and the management of these um, sports franchises was being done. So he had this position in the, the league office. He was at one point promoted to deputy commissioner. And many in the Black community, the Black players, um, the Black press thought, oh, we are, on the, <laughs> you know, we are almost there. He might be, you know, voted in as the new commissioner of the NBA. Mm-hmm. But that didn't happen. Um, of course, we have Commissioner Larry O'Brien who comes in after Walter Kennedy. And the league really wanted him because of his cred in Washington, D.C. as a Democratic Party operator who could right. maybe grease the wheels to get that um, ABA-NBA merger finally in effect. Um, and so the reaction to Simon Gordine being passed over really shone a spotlight on what um, Reverend Jesse Jackson called the vertical segregation of sport. Mm. Quoted in Black Sports Magazine, he talked about the fact that, of course, African-Americans have been let onto the field or let onto the court. But if you want to get off the court and you want to go into the front office or you want to go into league administration, the doors are still shut. Um, And so one of the things that he said was that, you know, this is not just an issue within sport. This is a societal issue because what it does in one of the key, you know, um, parts of American life is it sort of traps African-Americans at the the level of being literally like gladiators Mm -hmm. while you have a white architecture of power over top of them, taking in all of the profits and the money and controlling what those folks do on the court or on the the field. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, he became the way for folks to talk about this vertical segregation in sport, and then folks were connecting it to the continued um, discrimination 
in the corporate world beyond sport. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it became a real sort of flashpoint for talking about those issues of the rising black middle class in this period. Yeah, because it is interesting. Like when you talk about the executive offices and things like that, it's been uh, harder things to penetrate in some ways because sports is one of those things where the eye test is unmistakable, (laughs) you know, but it's different type of eye test (laughs) when it comes to the boardrooms, you know, um, and even now there's, there's still complaints in many, you know, not just basketball, but you know, many different sports. Certainly in the NFL, they've been bringing that up again and again, even the issue of, of black coaches too. Um, I mean, interestingly enough, in that chapter, I also talk about Al Adels and Casey Mm, Jones going up against each other with the Golden State Warriors and the Washington Bullets in 1975. And that's Mm -hmm. sort of another flashpoint because it was the first time that two Black coaches were in the NBA Finals. And not only was it two Black coaches, it was two Black assistant coaches and mostly Black squad. And you know, one of the things that happens in the wake of that is that some of these guys end up losing their jobs. And then there's, there's so, um, there's this reaction in, you know, uh, among black reporters at that time saying, well, the kind of stakes for black coaches are so much higher than for Mm -hmm. white coaches. So you can make one tiny mistake and you're done. And like Casey Jones, he couldn't find a a head coaching job for years. And yet less winning coaches, white coaches, were just, you know, going from team to team, finding jobs. I can't imagine that would be the case. Uh, (laughs) This is such new information. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so the bar was like, even though they had broken through, Sure. Um, and, and, you know, made those ranks or somebody like Wayne Embry had mm-hmm. gotten into the GM ranks. Right. They all knew what the burden, the racial burden was that they were carrying. Simon Gordine knew this as well, being the only black executive at that time in the NBA office. Yeah. But he was watching them, waiting for them to make some kind of mistake. And the idea that these guys could have the same kind of redemption in the wake of that mistake was, you know, still not a given. Yeah. It was not easy for black coaches. There were some that were able to stick around for a while. Um, but, uh, Casey Jones ended up coming back. I think it was assistant for the Lakers on their championship team, actually in 72. He, he was on Bill Sharman's squad, I believe, um, both ex Celtics. And then he did go back to the Celtics Mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, played my Lakers again. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is the ups and downs in that. It's so fraught during that era. It's so true, you know. Well, that's the thing. It's like we always talk about these moments. Like you, you started out talking about Jackie Robinson. Sure. You know, what happened after that? Yeah. You know that might have been the desegregation of that sport, but the right. actual process of real integration. Yeah. happen in fits and starts you know it's it's never this sort of linear narrative now that we've broken through everything just happens seamlessly mm-hmm. it's always a matter of fighting for things that i yeah. mean as a historian <laughs> that's something that i always see in in sport and in these discussions of the actual practice of racial integration in sport is a lot messier than I think we usually acknowledge. It's a lot more nuanced. It's, it's funny that, like I said before, Magic and Bird kind of get the credit for, you know, the new NBA, that type of thing. But if we're keeping it a hundred percent (laughs) real, it's really Larry Bird, honestly, because there were plenty of players who have been like magic before, you know? Oh yeah. 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 Larry Bird is playing kind of a playground style, you know, he's flashy. He's in your face. He's got all those attributes of the playground, you know, and 
I feel like he gave an excuse for white people to completely embrace the NBA now. <laughs> oh, it's well, magic and bird. And it's like, no, motherfucker, it's just bird for you. Don't act like it's magic and bird. We've always had, we had Julius Urban before magic. We had all this stuff. But bird, you know, Rick Barry was a little bit of that to some extent. Pistol Pete was that, mm-hmm. but he didn't quite have that. Fuck mm-hmm. you, motherfucker, that Bert had. Like, Bert was a trash talker. Like, he had all the attributes of a playground basketball player where there mm-hmm. are no prisoners taken. You know, Larry Bird, to me, was the white people's... I don't want to sound racist with this, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> but you know what I mean. It's he okay. was Because I'm meaning this... I'm meaning this lightly. I don't want people yeah. to take this as yeah, this, yeah. Whole, this deep racial thing. But let's talk about it in a fun way. In a, I mean, it allowed them to cheer this style openly as opposed to feel like right. it's, uh, it's destroying the game. Well, motherfucker, how come it's not destroying the game when Bird is playing like that? Well, That's it's my little so diatribe. It. <laughs> well, it just makes me think of all of the... Um, the white player, this continual parade of white players in the 70s. I didn't get mm-hmm. to write about this so much because it, the yeah. book is called Black Ball. So it's I really understand. focused on You have to black do white players. ball next. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, but I mean, you could almost call it like white hopes, this succession of white That's hopes funny. that never do what they're supposed to do. No, you know? sorry, sorry, Dave Cowens. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Although they did really try and lift him. I didn't really. Oh, so I, I wasn't able to include uh, a short piece that I had about the 1974 championships where it was, you know, sort Boston of talent, and, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, uh, and Milwaukee. Yes. Was that Kareem? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So it was Kareem and Oscar versus Cowens and Havlicek. Right. And that's sort of the moment at which Boston is like, oh, we now know how to market the team. <laughs> We're going to market it around. Uh, right. So, and because before that, it was a hockey town. It was not, you know, basketball played second fiddle. With all those the, championships, even. With all of those championships. Yeah. Although it was a Red still, Sox town, too. The Boston Red that's Sox. That's true. Yeah. So, it, yeah. So, but it wasn't like, as much as the Celtics were winning yeah. during the Bill Russell years, it was not a basketball town. Right. But one of the things that they did with that 1974 championship and the sort of revamping of the team was they mm. built the image of that team around yeah. Dave Cowens and John Havlicek as being these sort of stalwart every man kind right. of players who mm-hmm. were hardworking like Cowens, like he's short. But he can, you know, he can duke it up with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, he's you know. So smart. And he's, Such a smart player. That's when they start saying, this, oh, you know, for what he lacks in talent, he makes up in intelligence on the floor. Yeah. And actually, literally, those were the quotes that I was pulling from the report. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, you know, Havlicek is sort of the, the player before um, Bird comes in. And so Havlicek was legit. He was legit. He you know? was legit. Yeah. But he wasn't, he wasn't a player. He was at the end of player. his career too. Yeah. Right. That's true. Yeah. Right. So, but you, you kind of see the succession of folks and, and somebody like even Bill Walton, they had high hopes for Bill Walton, but, but Bill Walton you know, was... and he wasn't even a reliable white hope, yeah, whether but, on the court okay. with his injuries and his other stuff. I have to slow you down a little bit. So... <laughs> Well, first, let me go to the Celtics thing. That was the first year I learned to hate the Celtics as a Lakers fan. And here I'm a Lakers fan. But that stuff was not lost on me, even as a teenager, you know. But it wasn't that explicit yet. But that stuff was coming through because I was like, why is JoJo White? Like, I don't understand. How come I can't root for JoJo White? You know, I remember feeling that, you know. But, you know, I can for Bobby Nandridge and, you know, people in the Bucks. Now, I have to, we have to take back. The the Bill Walton thing, Bill Walton was legit though. That was like the place above. And we're talking not- about the stuff he did at UCLA was crazy. I mean, no, Walton was he had all the tools. He had horrible injuries. That well, uh, that's that's what I that's what I was sort of. But it get was to white black yeah. with him and the doctor mm-hmm. in seventy seven. Yeah, absolutely yeah. was true. Yeah. yeah, but you know, so it's injuries, and and also to his politics were not really what 
you know, he, he was part of the counterculture and <laughs> he was a hippie. Yeah. He's too, yeah, lefty. he was a hippie. Um, and then he had these horrible injuries that sort of cut his career down from what the expectations were. I think he sat out the 72 Olympics, right? He should have been on uh, that I team. I don't remember that. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. A lot of people don't remember that, that that team would have easily beaten, beaten the Russians if Walton had been in that team. But yeah. He had just, he was just plagued with, with injuries. Yeah. He had some bad so foot injuries. They were yeah. really leaning on him to be like the thing. And yeah. then it didn't, you know, didn't uh, quite didn't meet quite expectations. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they were like, all right, NBA, we tried. We're done. Wait, who's this Larry Bird? What is this? <laughs> exactly. But yeah. And, and then they also, I mean, it was a different time. It was yeah. the 80s. It was, you know, the rise of multiculturalism. And the 80s is a period of non-political basketball players. And do you think that brought a lot of people into the game, maybe, who were out of it? The fact that it, it was this apolitical arena? More or less. The labor struggles. I mean, I don't want to say that they were over because they're ongoing. Sure. They will always be ongoing. But the major scores, like getting rid of the reserve clause, Mm -hmm. you know, exposing blacklisting, all of those things, the merger, all of that was, you know, it was in the past. Mm -hmm. And it was no longer in the news anymore. And so the players didn't have to speak as much about their problems with management. There were battles over uh, the collective bargaining agreement in the early eighties. There was the passage of the drug policy in the early 1980s, but it didn't have the same kind of resonance. I think in the eighties as it did in the early seventies when basketball really was in this moment of transition. Mm -hmm. And I also think that, you know, Stern he had been in the league since or been working with or for the league since 1966. Mm-hmm. So he saw all of this, yeah. took that knowledge and realized that by the time we get to 84, this it, it's the sport that it is. The players yeah. are who they're going to be. Now we just have to figure out how to package that and sell it to not just an American public, but a global public too. And to his credit, he figured out how to lean into it while also putting, you know, enough barriers around it um, in order to keep it respectable and apolitical. Right. And then the circle is completed in my mind when the slam dunk contest comes to the all-star game, because this Mm -hmm. was a feature of the ABA um, all-star game in 75 when Julius Irving famously took off from the half court, from not the half court, from the free throw line. This was legend, by the way, in my mm-hmm. day, you know, that Julius did that. Nobody will ever be better than him. All-star game was never flashy in those days, the NBA all-star game. And once they did that, to me, it was the, it was, uh, finishing that circle of including this playground style, making it an established part of the NBA in that mid eighties. And I, I give David Stern a lot of credit for knowing that this is what the public wants. They want this style of basketball. Like it's black doesn't mean bad. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it's a black aesthetics. It's not necessarily a, like you mentioned, it's not necessarily about a black politics. Right. So it was about selling this aesthetic culture, right? Culture. Yeah. This cultural aesthetic that also, you know, I was part of that generation that grew up watching um, bird and magic. And, you know, I I wanted to be part of that energy Mm -hmm. of the sport. And then even moving into, you know, more of the hip hop era of basketball being, you know, a teen and early 20s person in uh, the 1990s, the kind of, you know, the word that you use, braggadocio, of yeah. hip hop and of of basketball appealed to my generation. I'm, mm-hmm. gen, I'm Gen X. So right. that was a way for us 
to express our own independence, our own autonomy, and our own sort of credibility. And so it became very saleable to people regardless of race or class or even nationality. And mm-hmm. we set up all those channels for monetizing that in the 1980s. So then by the time you get to the 90s and the new millennium, it's just, it, it's a machine Yeah, you know, that just prints it prints money. Yep. Green became the most important color once again, <laughs> as, it, as it normally does in color situations. Uh, uh, well, Teresa, thanks so much for talking with me. It's such an interesting, I, I love rabbit hole, going down rabbit holes and deep dives and blackball, you guys. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Spencer Haywood, generation that saved the soul of the NBA. It's so much of it is so relevant today, you know, and just to hear about, even how Oscar Robertson, how he had to prepare for that testimony and how he had to have his composure, little things like that, just lost in history. Like, I didn't know those mm-hmm. types of things, you know. Um, thanks so much for giving us this uh, little window into this period of time. Thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure, you know, talking basketball with you. I know. Talking some hoops. <laughs> That's what I'm talking Anytime. about. With the Canuck. <laughs> With the Canuck. <laughs> hey. <laughs> hey, with the Canuck. Teresa Runstetler, you guys. Black ball. Get it wherever you buy books. <laughs> <laughs>